And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Jack has just given us the context, the immediate context of that verse, verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 1, when he read from verse 15 through to verse 23. And we see that this verse is in the middle of a passage where Paul is praying for the Ephesians. That's the immediate context. The greater context is what's come before this in the first part of Ephesians, when Paul has been blessing God and reminding the Ephesians of all that God the Father has done and will do for them. For example, back in verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4 tells us that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And verse 5 it tells us that God predestined us to be, or to be adopted to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And in verse 6 through 8, it tells us about the great grace of God which, with which he has blessed us and which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 9 tells us that God has made known to us the mystery of his will and a plan for the future, the fullness of time. Verse 11 tells us, in God we have obtained an inheritance. And verse 13 and 14 tell us that God has sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. God has been doing it all. God acts. And because of God, we enjoy all the blessings that we do. But for Paul, he's just reminded the Ephesians of this, but there's more. He wants them to to know more. And uh, he picks out three things that they may know. And that's in verses 18 and 19. Uh, He says, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The first two points we've talked about before in previous sermons. Today we're going to talk about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Notice first that Paul puts their attention on his power. He's not telling them to think of anybody else's power, any other spirit's power or any other person's power and not their own power, but to think of God's power. As Christians, we already know that God is powerful and that's right throughout the Bible. Even in Genesis chapter 1, we read things like, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And later on, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. God is powerful. Jeremiah said, our Lord God, behold, you have made heaven and earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. And we know that God is called the God 
Almighty. Now Paul wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. God's power is immeasurable. Some things today, even with the modern scientific equipment, are too small to be measured. But that's not the case with God's power. It's not too small. It's too great. This reminds me of when God asked Abraham to come outside at nighttime and said, look up at the sky and count the number of stars if you are able. Well, I was out last night and I looked at the stars and I saw the Milky Way. No way can you count the stars. The stars were immeasurable and God's power also is immeasurable. God's power is immeasurably great toward us who believe. Notice next that it's toward us. God's power is toward us, not against us. So often in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, when we read of the power of God, it's against people, against somebody. In fact, Moses um, sings a song with the children of Israel in Exodus 15. I'll just pick out bits and pieces. Well, actually, I'll read the first few verses. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. That kind of power of God was very physical. God has power also beyond the physical. We read in the Proverbs that the hearts of kings are like streams of water in the hands of God, and he turns them whichever way he wants. There's a good example of that in the book of Daniel. You remember the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4, the light, the, about verse 28 or so, if you want to follow along. I'll just read bits and pieces of it. Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat 
grass like an ox. When Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses, he blessed God most high and praised him. He said, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand. None can stay his hand. Nobody can stop God from doing what God wants to do because he is so powerful. Our verse in Ephesians tells us that God is not against us as he was against the Egyptians and against Nebuchadnezzar. Rather, God's power is toward us. And right here in the same book of Daniel, we can see a couple of examples of that back in chapter 3. You know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were thrown into a furnace which was heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And cast into the, they were bound and cast into the fiery furnace. Verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He said, did not we cast three men bound into the fire? Now he says, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods and so the men came out and there's no hair of their heads was singed their cloaks were not harmed no smell of fire upon them and Nebuchadnezzar blessed the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him And then he made a decree. And in the decree he said, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. There is no other power so great as God. And while we're there, we might as well look at the other familiar example in chapter 6 of Daniel being thrown into the den of lions. The king was worried. He came early in the morning to find out how Daniel was. Daniel said to the king in verse 21, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. The king was very glad about that. And again, he said, sorry, the writer says, No kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. King Darius wrote another decree. He said, he commands the people to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he's the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. That's the power of God towards people. In this case, towards Daniel and his friends. Having said that, 
Paul now wants to give the Ephesians an example of this great immeasurable power of God. And it continues on in verse 19. It's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You'll notice here that God, to raise Christ from the dead, didn't just snap his fingers. It took him great might. God used his great might to raise Jesus from the dead. Now, God had raised people from the dead before through Elijah and Elisha. But this was different. The body of Christ had been dead for three days. It was in a sealed tomb, sealed by a great round stone, being dark inside and pretty earless. Before he was buried, he was wrapped in a shroud, and then about 30 kilograms of spices, myrrh and aloe, were wrapped in linen cloths around his body. Even if a person and that stated, resuscitated, that'd be too heavy to move. There'd be no way of ear getting to their nostrils, of light getting to their eyes. But God used his great might and raised Christ from the dead in a different way than he'd raised anybody else before. He raised the body of Christ immortal so that it would never die again. He raised the body of Christ imperishable, so no parts would waste away. And he raised the body of Christ glorified, so it was suitable to be in the presence of God and to live eternally. God raised Christ from the dead. And to this day in God's universe, Christ's body is the only one like it. He is the first fruits, a promise to us that we also will be raised immortal, imperishable, and glorified. That's not the only thing God did in his great power. He raised Christ from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We know that Christ was seated in heaven. Heavenly places, the word there, can mean heaven, but also, more commonly, and it's only used in Ephesians, but it's used six times in Ephesians, more commonly refers to the realm of the spirits, or people or beings with intellect and minds, such as God himself, angels and demons and other spirits, and humans. So God raised Christ to be at his right hand in heaven, obviously, but also in that whole realm of the heavenly places. And we know that Jesus, even before he ascended, his last words in Matthew were, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So already 
he had that full authority. He goes on with details. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Far above. If Christ is far above, then all the other powers are far below. Way, way below Jesus Christ. This would have had special meaning for the Ephesians because the Ephesians came from a spiritual culture. They operated and communicated with spirits. They cast out or attempted to cast out demons. They worshipped Artemis, the great god of the Ephesians. You can see some of that in Acts chapter 19. You'll recall the seven sons of Sceva who were trying to do an exorcism. It seems like the the way to do exorcisms was to find a name of a spirit power and hopefully choose one that was more powerful than the spirit you're trying to cast out. They used names in a sort of magical way. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? The spirits recognized that those seven sons did not have the authority to use Jesus' name because they themselves were not submitted to Jesus. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So they were involved in this kind of exorcisms. And then they had these magic arts that they were doing. So they were trying to control the spirit world or to appease the spirits so that they would receive wealth or health or whatever it was they desired in their life to make their life easy and not have bad things happen to them. So they would do all these various things. You can read in the next verse, a number of those, uh, verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This again is part of the background of the Ephesians. And the last part, I won't read it all, but you can see in the next chapter, next part, I mean, about the Artemis, the god of the Ephesians. And one person was complaining. That person made little shrines for people to worship. Verse 27, there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. That she may be, <coughs> she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. 
This is the background of the Ephesians to whom Paul wrote that Christ has been seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and name. No matter what name those Ephesians before they were Christians had used, no matter which powers they had been subject to and tried to appease, Jesus was above every name that is named. And Paul goes on for good measure to say, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Perhaps there were some Christians among them who, who, yes, Jesus is the most powerful name now, but what about the future? Maybe somebody more powerful is going to come along. No, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet, verse 22. That's all things, nothing left outside from under the power of Jesus. That's also a reference to Psalm 8. So in his talking here, Paul has told them two things that God has done. He's raised Christ from the dead and he's seated him at his right hand. Now he tells them the third thing. God gave him to the church. God gave him to the church. Now we all know the Bible verse for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son, born of a woman, who grew up as a child, grew in wisdom and stature. He was baptized. He started teaching and preaching and doing good working miracles. In the end, he was nailed to a cross and died, taking our punishment. Yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That was the son that he gave, Christ, God incarnate, in a very human body. But now, now that Christ is raised Immortal, all-powerful. It says here again, God gave him in that role, you might say, to the church. Christ is head over all things. And as that person over all things, God has given him to the church. And how fitting it is that God should give him to the church. This is the church who is part of the joy that was set before Christ as he faced the cross. A joy that was set before him. This is the church that Christ loved and gave himself up for that he might sanctify her and cleanse her. This is the church that he will present to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the church that Christ nourishes and cherishes. How fitting 
that God would give him to the church. And how fitting, from our point of view, that Christ, the one who loved us so deeply, who intercedes for us even now, should be given to us. Yes, Christ is the head of all things. But we go on to read the church, which is his body. There is a special relationship between Christ, the head of all things, that's found only as Christ as head of the church. It's an intimate place. The head has no closer connection than to the body. And Christ has no greater intimacy with any people than to his church. These last words of the chapter. The fullness of him who fills all in all have caused many Greek scholars and commenters, commentators, headaches. They say this is the most difficult verse in the whole of Ephesians to know exactly what it means. It's not that they can't guess the general meaning. It's just that they can't get the exact meaning because it's open to some different interpretations. The first is the word fullness. <clears throat> what does fullness mean in this context? Was ambiguous. Fullness can be something which makes something else full, or it can mean something which is itself full. So if you think of uh, making something else full, that would mean that the church would be making Christ full. And that can seem a bit blasphemous at first. We can think that Christ is the incarnate Son of God. There's no way we can add to God's fullness. However, the reply to that is that yes, but as Christ as head would need the body to complete him. So there's, there's that argument. Or in a modern day sitting, we might say a married couple, um, you have the husband, but the husband is not the whole married couple. He's not complete, he's not full. He needs the wife as well. The other idea is that the church is full of something. And that also... Um, is a possible translation and some translators prefer that the ESV is wisely translated in a way that's open to both interpretations the second thing that causes the commentators some difficulty is who does him who fills all refer to as you remember from the early part of my message When we read through Ephesians, it's God the Father doing things. God does this, he acts in this way, he does the next thing. It's always the Father. And so people say this also is probably the Father who fills all in all. And there is biblical, um, that's a biblical saying, a biblical thought. Even in the next chapter, Ephesians 3, it talks about the fullness of God. Other people say, well, that's true, but these last couple of verses have been talking about Christ, that all things are under his feet, that's Christ's feet, and gave him, that's Christ over head of all things. 
which is his body, that's Christ's body. So it's probably this hymn here is referring to Christ, so that means Christ would fulfill the church. And that thought is also biblical and Ephesians chapter 4 talks about the fullness of Christ. Well, they don't know. But the important thing is that the church is the fullness of Christ. If the church is filled with what is it filled? Well, we'll be talking about the fullness more in other sermons, but there's a phrase over in chapter 5 that I really like. Paul's talking about light. And it says, for the fruit of light, that's verse 9, the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. All that is good and right and true. And we can be sure that what God fills us with is all that is good and right and true. Now, as you've followed along with my speaking this morning, you may have lost sight of where we started. Remember, we've been talking about an example of God's immeasurably great power toward us who believe. It's not us who earned it. It's not us who worked hard for it. It's just us who believe. And what do we believe? Verse 13 tells us, you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's what we believe. And so we have this great power of God toward us. I just want to take a a moment just to give a few thoughts about power. Power is often dramatic. Think of a storm and the lightning strikes or the noise of the thunder or the roaring of the sea. Even with man-made things, a power line comes down in the storm and breaks and touches the road and the wire arcs and sparks and sets fires. And yet that same power is making these fans work and the lights go. It's more hidden, you might say. And Jesus gave some examples which show God's power. One of the examples he used was to talk about yeast mixed in a batch of dough. We might think of baking powder in a cake mix. It's hidden in the dough. You don't really see it working. But the the dough expands. The cake rises. It does its power in a more powerful effect in a more hidden way. Jesus also gave the example of a farmer sowing seed. The farmer sowed the seed and he went to sleep at night times, woke up during the daytime and says, and the seed sprouted and grew. The farmer knew not how. There was power in that seed. In fact, a, a, a small seed can have such power in it that when planted, 
drawing in the nutrients and moisture of the soil, it can cause a great tree to grow. A great and mighty tree, mighty in height, or mighty in width and its spread, or mighty in the thickness and girth of its trunk, mighty in its strength, mighty in the length of years that it lasts, some of them centuries, from one seed, the power of a seed. Peter says in First Peter, we have been born again by a seed. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So my point is that, yes, the power of God toward us is immeasurably great. But it will not always show itself in a spectacular way. But it will show itself because it is power. The person you are as a Christian today is not the same as you as a Christian five, ten years ago. You've matured, you've grown by the power of God working in you. Cross Point Church today is not the same as Cross Point Church was five, seven years ago. People have matured. And Cross Point Church in the future will not be the same because God will cause it to grow. And you as an individual will be caused to grow by the immeasurably great power of God. The people of Ephesus, like we ourselves, will probably identify with these words from Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The power of God toward us is immeasurably great. Let's pray. We rejoice that you planted the word of the gospel in our lives. And that word of power caused us to be born again. That we could be people in your own family, sons and heirs. We often look at ourselves, Father, and see the obvious weaknesses sinful nature and failings 
And yet when we think of it, there has been progress in our lives and in this church. And we thank you for the power at work within us. In Jesus' name, amen.